In today's worship audio recording, we have the audio from July 2nd, 2017, Pentecost 4a. We look at the concept especially of reconciliation as seen in the early portion of Romans chapter 5. Be sure to check out today's show notes for a PDF copy of the bulletin. Good morning. Welcome to Shepherd of the Lakes Lutheran Church for worship today. As we continue our walk through the book of Romans, today we look at the concept of reconciliation. One of those long words, multi-syllable words that we don't talk a whole lot about in regular everyday life, except if it's a really kind of a dicey situation. We'll look at that a little bit more closely in our, in our sermon today. The service is outlined for you in your service folder. We'll begin with our opening hymn, number 226, and then continue in the front part of your red hymnal on page 15. God bless your worship. Continue on page 15 in the front part of your red hymnal. Please rise. We begin today, as always, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins to God our Father asking him, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to grant us forgiveness. Holy and merciful Father, I confess that I am by nature sinful, and that I have disobeyed you in my thoughts, words, and actions. I have done what is evil, and failed to do what is good. For this I deserve your punishment, both now and in eternity. But I am truly sorry for my sins. And trusting in my Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
merciful to us, and has given his only Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, as a called servant of Christ, and by his authority, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the peace of forgiveness, let us praise the Lord. first reading comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 19. Here we see the compassion of God, that he gave his people a prophet to renew their hearts. After they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, they camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and to tell the people of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my special treasure out of all the nations, although the entire earth is mine. You will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Moses went and summoned the elders of the people. And he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together, Everything that the Lord has said, we will do. This is the word of our God. We continue with the psalm for today, Psalm 100, as found on page 104. Oh, <laughs> 
true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became fully human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come in in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who in unity with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. You may be seated for our next hymn, number 351. church history, and it has come around again, as it always does. It came up at the time of the Reformation, 
It came up again, especially when Christianity moved to the New World, this Western Hemisphere, this North America. And it has come around again. How do you reconcile? When you call God a God of love, how could a loving God send people to hell? How do you reconcile God's holiness and justice with God's grace? And if you really confess and believe that God is holy and just, and he punishes sin, and he demands perfection, then how is it that you as a Christian can come here and joyfully sing and joyfully worship? How can you talk about the love of God? When you also talk about a God who punishes sin forever in hell. And when we say he punishes sin forever in hell, of course what we mean that he punishes sinners forever in hell. Is there a little bit of a tension there? How do you reconcile the two? They seem utterly opposed to one another, utterly wondering, what do the love of God and the holiness of God have to do with each other? Some propose a solution. Well, you know, that's the, the God of the Old Testament this primitive, bloodthirsty kind of a God. Old Testament God who demanded sacrifices and service. And if you do X, Y, and Z, then God will bless you. But this New Testament God that we know and we all recognize and know and love, well, he's the God of love. He's the God of grace. He's the God of forgiveness. And go on along with your life. Skip along, happy, knowing that you are loved, knowing that this God, this God condones whatever it is you happen to be feeling today. That's one potential solution. But perhaps you recognize what is wrong with that. That this God of love and this God who is holy and just and punishes sin is one and the same God. It's absolute, well, Illiteracy, I'll say. To say that God can change, that, that this God who existed at the beginning of time is somehow different from the God of today, is foolishness. And it's really delusion. Dancing along as though nothing is wrong today, as though God does not punish sin, as though we have advanced too far to worship that sort of a God. How do you reconcile so if, if God is both holy and just and gracious and loving, maybe he's kind of a grandfatherly figure who pats us on the head, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. But that's not holiness. Now is it? That concept of holiness is, is this idea. This is who God is of absolute perfection absolute perfection, and you and I know, as Paul gets to a little bit later here in Romans chapter 5, you and I know that we were born guilty of Adam's sin, coming into this world with a guilty verdict hanging over our head, and guilty with the cancer of sin working its poison through our bodies. And so when we talk about holiness, that's an absolutely terrifying concept. You surely can't mean you surely can't mean absolute perfection, can you? Well, no one can do that. God just wants you to, to do the best that you can with what you've got, and God will do the rest. It just flows so easily and so freely as human nature tries to resolve this seemingly intractable, unresolvable problem, this tension between the holiness of God and the love of God, because it says... If God really is holy and demands holiness, then surely I don't want that kind of God. I want a God who loves me. What does a Christian say today? The next solution, similar, but a little bit different. The Christian sitting here today, well, 
I recognize the holiness of God, and I, as a Christian, I know Jesus died for me. And so, I come here when others don't. I come here, and I'm sitting here, and I drag myself out of bed on Sunday morning, and we all know the list of people that aren't. I can think of my next-door neighbor who isn't, but I'm here. Surely God's got to be happy with that. Maybe that has brought me somewhat into his good graces. Do you see where that leads? Even among Christians, that sinful flesh tries to grab every good and decent Christian action and drag it down and twist it. Twist it into making it about me and asserting that, that God will and must be happy when I do the things that are in line with his will, especially, especially when compared with those outside of God's grace and those outside of God's church. But it's the same solution. It really is. It's the same solution that says, well, holiness isn't actually holiness, and God isn't actually serious, because it really says that I, as a Christian, I live up to what God demands. Terrifying thought. We're kind of stuck right there. How do you reconcile the two? God of love? Holy? Unapproachable? Before whom Moses himself says, I am quaking with fear? Before whom, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John fall down on their faces when God speaks? How do you reconcile the holiness of God and the love of God? The only answer outside of Christ is the one that many Christians and most people in general run to. Somehow, somehow, if I do, then God will. Look at what God says here in, in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. And if you will listen carefully, and if you will keep my covenant, then you will be my special treasure. And the Christian, the Christians who are disowned on Jesus, Christians who don't know what the gospel is, will look at that and say, oh, God's holding out this promise. All we have to do is follow his covenant and listen to his voice. And then, then, if we do that faithfully enough, we will be God's chosen people. And it's the constant, constant drip. Have I done enough? Have I been a faithful Christian? Have I lived up? Because really, every single human attempt to try and reconcile the holiness and justice of God with the love of God will fall short. Except for one. You know his name. It's Jesus Christ. Because when we talk about the, the reconciliation of God, as we try to reconcile the holiness of God and the love of God, you can't talk about the love of God without talking about Good Friday. And you can't talk about a loving God without without recognizing that this God demonstrated his love by giving his son for you and for me. And that's really the other ditch. The other ditch that so many Christians get dragged off into. Not the ditch of, if you do this and this and this, then God will love you and you'll measure up. But the ditch of, don't worry about it, because God is a God of love. Throwing out God's law entirely. On the one side... Or, on the other side, holding out God's law as the solution. If you do this, then God will. On the other side, don't worry about it. But the only way you can talk about the love of God is by talking about the blood of Jesus. Shed for you. The only way you can talk about a loving God at all is by talking about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because right there, Right there we see the only place 
the only place where the holiness and justice of God is reconciled with the grace and love of God. That this God who has never changed, that this God who has never changed needed to be faithful to himself by punishing sin. And yet this God who had, has never changed chose instead to not punish you or me, but to punish his son in our place. Makes sense. And it's the most beautiful truth that only the Holy Spirit can teach. That only the Holy Spirit can bring home to your heart. It's the most beautiful, beautiful truth that any unbeliever could read through and, and try to rationalize. But only God, the Holy Spirit, could create faith. There's one final pitfall. Going on from there, the Christian might scratch the head and say, oh, then that's the only way that God could reconcile his holiness and his love. And the next step from there is that, well, if God wanted to remain a God of love, he needed to send his son. Watch out. Because God could have and still would have been a God of love, even if, even if he had sent all people to hell. Kind of makes the, the blood run cold for just a minute. That God had held out and provided a way to heaven. If you follow my law, then you will go to heaven. If you keep my covenant, then you will be my people. But as our God, in his totally undeserved compassion for you and for me, God said, I see that you cannot do that. God saw the world going literally to hell. And he gave his son. He said, here is another way. It is no working of your own, no decision of your own, no asking of your own, no work of your own, but only the work of Jesus. As God poured out his wrath and satisfied his justice and his holiness, as he punished all sin for you and for me. At the same time, in that word of the gospel, in the sacrament today, he gives you your forgiveness again, free of charge, going above and beyond anything that had ever been demanded by his own nature, going above and beyond anything that we could have expected this is the gospel. This is what makes Christianity unique. The blood of Jesus. In that blood of Jesus, we see, we see the love of God. And you can't talk about a loving God without talking about Jesus shedding his blood for you and for me. Just look at what, what Paul writes. At the appointed time, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Those are the people that he had talked about back in chapter 1, who had turned their backs on God, and God gave them over to greater and greater sin. Now, Jesus, Paul tells us here in Romans chapter 5, Jesus died for those people, for you, for me, the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, Oh, right there. And there it is. The blood of Jesus. The gospel. In tangible form. Dripping onto the ground. As God poured out his wrath, the sinner sees the love of God for him. As if you and I stand there at the foot of the cross, remembering and bringing our guilt our shame, even the things that we don't recognize or realize, standing there, Jesus, bleed on me. Bleed on me, because in that blood, you see, sin has been paid for. 
The point that God was making again and again in the Old Testament with all those sacrifices, without the shedding of blood, there is not forgiveness. But when blood has been shed, there is forgiveness. God's holiness and God's love reconciled at the cross for you and for me. In this, this totally unexpected way, above and beyond, above and beyond, where God says, this is yours. Not through your own actions, not through your own decision, not through your own working. Jesus died for you. Kind of think of it, think of it this way. 1745. The year 1745, you know, about the, shortly before the United States, well, what would become the United States, the colonies revolted against the, the British. But over in Europe, 1745, a man named Peter Allwards published a pamphlet. It was kind of a, a little self-help or a little booklet, a little pamphlet to help people get through the storms as you live in a city. Because as they gathered together and clustered together in cities and started building taller and taller buildings, they began to realize that there was a problem. You know, living out in the, in the country with trees towering above your house, you didn't have to worry about lightning. But they're in the city. You're out for a walk and it starts raining and downpouring and it starts thundering and you take shelter in the church. Because its doors are open and you don't want to get soaked. And he published this pamphlet to try and correct a tremendous danger of city dwelling. The pamphlet was entitled Reasonable and Theological Considerations About Thunder and Lightning. Reasonable and Theological Considerations About Thunder and Lightning. Basically saying, if it's raining, don't run to the church. Because the church is going to get struck by lightning and you, my friend, are going to get electrocuted and die. That was almost preposterous. And it was just about four years later that a man named Benjamin Franklin invented what we now know as the lightning rod. And a year or so after that, in June of 1750, he put a kite up in the thunderstorm to test out his theory. He had wanted to put this lightning rod on the tallest church in Philadelphia, Christ Church in Philadelphia, but that church was, well... The building project had been delayed by a couple of years. And so he said, I'll just set up a kite and I'll test out this theory of my lightning rod. And so that's where you get Martin, Benjamin, not Martin Luther, you get Benjamin Franklin flying a kite in the middle of the storm and with that lightning jar and a key and that whole bit that kids, you know, draw pictures of, but tell them don't fly a kite in a thunderstorm because you'll get electrocuted. Well, what Benjamin Franklin came up with was the idea to put a tall spike on the top of a building attached to a wire that went all the way down into the ground, a lightning rod. Plain and simple. We've seen them before. Probably don't think about it very often. But if you've ever seen a building struck by lightning, you begin to see the genius of lightning rod. Because there that lightning rod up and above the rest of the building, towering above every other structure, absorbs all the power and all the energy of that storm. Transmits it safely away from the building. Romans chapter 5. Paul says that Jesus was God's lightning rod. Think of that. You and I are God's church. And Jesus, there at the very peak, kind of like the cross at the top of the steeple, kind of like a lightning rod up into the sky, God struck it with all of his force and all of his might, transmitted safely away from you and me. Transmitted not harmlessly into the ground, but into his own body. And buried in the grave. You and I, well, it's not raining on God's church. It's a shower. It's a shower of blood. A shower of water. Just like the, the blood and water out of his side, just like the, the blood of our Lord 
given to you once again is the Lord's Supper, marking you as somebody who has been saved from wrath and reconciled to God. So think of that. You think to yourself, wow, that's what God did for me. The Son of God, he didn't, he didn't have to, but he chose to. You have been reconciled to God, and his wrath was poured out on somebody else so that the blood of Christ can be poured out on you. There in the blood of Christ, you see the love of Christ. And naturally the Christian asks, well, what of it? Just have to think about it for a moment. Because the reconciliation that you have been reconciled to God, that, that sort of idea applies also to you as a Christian in every aspect of your life. For instance, when we kneel, when we kneel up here, each individual Christian receiving the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, each one individually reconciled to God, and yet we kneel together, reconciled to one another. As we gather here for worship, each one receiving forgiveness in the absolution, and at the same time joining our voices as people who together have been reconciled and who together are being built into God's holy church. Because what Moses talks about here, what God talks about here in Exodus chapter 19, the Apostle Peter would later apply to you and to me. Not by living up to God's law, and not by ignoring God's law, but by saying you have been reconciled to Jesus, that Jesus took God's wrath, and now, as you have been built, you have been built into God's holy church, this applies to you. You are God's, God's special treasure out of all the earth. You, a kingdom of priests and God's holy nation. So I guess the only other place we could go? Remembering how each of us has been reconciled to God. Jesus wants the world to know about this. And I'm not saying, you know, go to the other side of the world. Because Christians on the other side of the world are doing that already. But chances are, you know somebody who, A, you've had a disagreement with, and maybe it's long-standing rift extending back over decades. Maybe it's relatively short, a squabble of some sort. Well, you've been reconciled to God. So be reconciled to one another. Maybe you know somebody who has absented themselves from worship here for whatever reason. You know that you have been reconciled to God. You can tell them. Be reconciled to God. Return Return to the church, because here at the church of God, it's not raining today. But if you want to picture a lightning rod up at the top of our steeple, the wrath of God hitting the cross of Christ. And you here inside, safe from the wrath of God through the blood of Christ, raining down upon you and upon me. So how do you reconcile the love of God and the holiness of God. Should we hold out the false hope? Well, here's five steps. Here's a couple of things for you to go do so that you can salve your conscience. Should we just ignore completely? Oh, <laughs> God's not serious. God is a God of love. No. Both of those things deny God. Deny the true God and both of those things, most importantly, lose out on the reality of the gospel. Paul has it for us here, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, since we have now been justified by his blood, and when you see the blood of Christ, you can put in the words, the love of God. Those two things are synonymous concepts. Since we have been justified by his blood, it is certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It is even more certain that since we have been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. 
that Jesus now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding on your behalf. And the Christian response? Not only is all this true, and not only has this been brought home to you through, through word and sacrament, not only is this the case, but we also go on rejoicing confidently in our God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because you and I can approach God without fear, this God of holiness, this God of love, because you have been reconciled to God through the cross of Christ, through the blood of Christ. So please, rejoice. You have been reconciled. Please, rejoice. There are others who have been reconciled and need to be reconciled. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now may the peace of God that goes beyond all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We continue with the Create in Me as found on page 20 in the front part of your hymnal. Turn to page 130 in the front part of your red hymnal, and on page 130 you will find the responsive prayer to the nation. Please rise. We pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge with thanks all, that all we have and enjoy is a gift from your gracious hand. We come before you today in heartfelt appreciation for our nation and its people. We thank you for enabling us to worship you in freedom and to serve you without fear. You have enriched us with the bounties of farm and factory, the beauty of forest and mountain, and the marvels of medicine and science. For all these blessings, we praise and glorify you. Look with favor upon our nation and preserve our cherished liberties. Enable our leaders to govern with wisdom, honesty, courage, and justice. Protect those who serve in the armed forces and those who maintain peace and safety in our communities. Give us willingness to obey our nation's laws and to work for the common good. Keep our financial institutions secure and our economy strong. Bless our fields that they may produce abundant harvests. Guard us from calamities of nature and accident and spare our land from the ravages of disease and epidemic. 
Strengthen the homes of our nation. By your spirit, lead husbands and wives to love each other, parents to nurture their children, young adults to assume responsibility, and children to show respect. And we also ask that you give your Christians heart to make use of the liberties that you have granted us, especially the, the free exercise of our religion. Grant that we use these opportunities to speak of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Now hear us, Lord, as we bring you our private petition. To you, O Lord, we bring our thanks and our requests. And our prayers for Jesus' sake. And we also join to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the highest is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We continue with the sacrament as found on page 21. The Lord be with you.
your sin. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given into death for the forgiveness of all your sin. Take and eat. Take and drink. This is the true blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sin. Take and drink. This is the true blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sin. Take and drink. Now may this true body and blood of our Savior strengthen and preserve in the true faith and the life everlasting. Be part of peace with God, reconciled to God through His blood. Amen.
Christ, give them to death for the forgiveness of all your sins. Take and drink. This is the true blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, shed for the forgiveness of all your sins. May this true body and true blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you in true faith, the life everlasting, depart in peace. Continue with the Song of Simeon as on page 24. Please rise.
Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace.